0: A reading from Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries to guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the, a- the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing, what was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they, walked, when they had walked the length of the street, he su- suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was, it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had, what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is a voice of God, of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Amen.
1: Thank you, Ashley. And I thank you all for being here today. Like Galen said, my name is Keevon and I'm one of the deacons here at Mosaic. First off, I want to say thank you to Pastor Morgan and to the elder team for allowing me to be up here today. I'm truly honored. and I'm excited about digging into this text with all of you today. For those of you who do not know me, I'm a PK, a pastor's kid. That being said, the Bible is something I've been around my entire life, and I'm very grateful for that. My parents took us to church every Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday for Bible study, and Thursday for community group, and Friday for youth group. Whew, I'm tired of just listing all of that. Uh, As a young boy, one of my favorite things, a prized possession actually, was an illustrated version of the Bible. This Bible easily contained a thousand pages, and contained illustrations of basically every major story in the Bible. Honestly, as a kid, this is how I learned most of my Bible stories— One of which was this very story right here, the story of Peter being freed from prison. And it was always a favorite of mine. Now, when I was a kid, the story was really simple. Peter was arrested, an angel rescued him, and everybody was happy. (laughs) But, as we're gonna see today, there's a lot more to the story than initially meets the eye. As we work through the text today, we're gonna draw from four main points. First, we will look at an immense suffering. Second, a daring rescue. Third, we'll explore the healing of community. And finally, God's ultimate plan of redemption. So, first, an immense suffering. In verse 1 and 2, we see it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Intending to persecute them, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, King Herod Agrippa, he was a wicked man who, much like his uncle, who was the king that reigned during the life of Jesus, And his grandfather, who put the babies to death in Bethlehem, he was pretty evil. Herod had created an unholy alliance with the Jewish leaders of that day because he loved the praise and the glory of all those around him. Now, if we look at verse 2, we want to let that sink in again. Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Try to imagine how it would feel to have a leader in our church taken from us and executed. It could potentially be world-shattering. I guarantee that the Christians everywhere during that time were praying for James' deliverance and his safety. Sadly, deliverance did not come, and James, one of the sons of thunder, became the first disciple to be martyred. I'm fully convinced, however, that like Stephen before him, James was happy to die for Christ and ready to be with the Lord again. For those here left on earth, though, this would have been a time of sorrow for many of them, especially his own brother. Recently, I went through my own time of immense suffering as one month ago, my dad passed away. My dad was a believer who found out a few years back that he had a failing heart. We believed for healing, whether that was through the form of a miracle restoration of his heart or through the form of a transplant. Initially, my dad got a heart pump. They gave us 12 extra months with him as a family and some of the greatest memories that we've ever had. After originally getting better... Things rapidly went downhill, and one night, the pacemaker that was on his heart shocked him 16 times in an attempt to get it back on track. He survived and was taken to the hospital, and the doctors once again said, we need to quickly get you a heart. Before he could get a transplant, though, things took a turn for the worse. Bleeding in his brain caused his functions to shut down, and he simply fell asleep. 24 hours after closing his eyes for the last time, We turned off life support and said our goodbyes. It was a time of pain and sadness, and when I read this passage, I instantly identified with the believers in the church. Many of us in here, if not all of us, understand the pain of losing a loved one, and this is how the disciples must have felt when they heard that James was dead. Sometimes we run into difficult circumstances such as these, and we get angry at God. We're upset about losing a loved one. We want to know why we didn't get the answer we were looking for, or why our loved one didn't get the healing we prayed about. I bet the church won't do the same thing. Why was James executed, but Peter spared? One answer that I want to quickly put down is an answer that has floated around the church for a while a lack of faith. There are some who falsely claim that those of us left here on earth didn't pray hard enough, or that the person going through the afflictions didn't have enough faith. Dangerous thoughts like that leave people feeling like they could have done more in their own strength to change the outcome, but even that isn't true. Pastor and author Tim Keller says in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, often hear people say, if God is going to bless us, we must believe fervently without any doubts that God will bless us. We must claim our blessing with full assurance that we will get it. But we don't see that attitude in the Bible. Think about the greatest servants from Abraham to Joseph— to Jesus himself, who often prayed and did not get the answer they sought. If we say, I know you will answer this prayer, God, you can't not answer it, then our confidence is not really in God's wisdom, but our own. Our own wisdom versus God's wisdom. His thoughts, higher than our thoughts. His ways, higher than our ways. God's ways being higher than our ways are an unpopular thought, with both non-Christians and Christians alike. The true question for us believers really is, though, can I fully trust God with my life, even though I'm hurting and in pain? The answer is yes, when we realize we have a God who has gone through what we're going through. Not only does God walk with us through tribulation, he knows what it's like to be in tribulation himself. In the garden, Jesus prayed for a solution other than dying on the cross. But in the end, he knew it wasn't his own will, but God's will be done. Here, we see a man who, in his godly power, has infinite wisdom and understanding, yet, in his humanity, asks not to go through the suffering that he knows must happen in order for God's will to be accomplished. Why do certain things work out different than we want? We may never know in this lifetime, but as we will see shortly, there is hope. Take heart in knowing that you aren't going through your suffering because you didn't pray enough or because you didn't have enough faith or because you did something wrong. There was a time when Jesus and his disciples encountered a blind man, and they asked him, Who sinned that this man was born blind? Jesus responded, It's not because of his sins or because of his parents' sins. This happens so that the power of God could be seen in him. This is the hope that we have, that through our pain and suffering, not despite it, God will be glorified. This carries us into verse 3, where we see the beginning of what will become a daring rescue. Here, we see King Herod getting drunk off his high approval ratings. Wanting to enhance his own praise, he arrests Peter during the festival of unliving bread. For Peter and the rest of the disciples, the timing of it all must have seemed very familiar. It's very likely that Peter thought back to the Last Supper and the crucifixion. Imagine his thoughts wandering to how Jesus died during the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I think that there would have been some comfort knowing that, like his master, his last days on earth would be during the sacred time that represented deliverance. Peter was so peaceful the night before his trial that he fell asleep and wasn't even worried about the troubles that were coming around the corner. This essential part of Christianity is sometimes hard for believers. It says, I will trust God even if it leads me to death. Peter believed this and was under the mindset that if God delivered him, so be it. And if God did not, so be it as well. He knew that God would work everything out for good in the end and that through his suffering, God would ultimately be glorified. While sleeping, an angel shows up and posts Peter on the side. He's like, dude, get up. Let's go. Immediately the chains fall off and he's free. Peter's tripping at this point. He's not sure if this is real or a dream, but he's just going to go with it. Walking with the angel, Peter goes past the first set of guards. Nothing happens. They walk past the second set of guards. Still good. Finally, they get to the last gate. It all swings open by itself, yet nobody stops him. Peter gets outside, and I could just imagine that a gust of cold wind hits him in his face and snaps him back to life, back to reality. <laughs> the angel leaves him at this point, and Peter realizes that God has just saved him from Herod and the Jews. Meanwhile, back at the crib, people are praying. Praying, not playing. <laughs> they were praying, I guarantee it. <laughs> Everyone had gathered at John Mark's house, and the Bible says they're praying earnestly. Now, this word for earnest, ektenos, is the same word that Luke used in his gospel to describe Jesus praying in the garden. Jesus prayed so deeply that he sweat drops of blood. It's an intense word that means to stretch something out to its limits. These believers were earnestly stretched out in prayer for Peter. They were praying for God to do something miraculous. So Peter gets to the house, knocks on the door, Rhoda hears Peter's voice, but she doesn't even answer. She's so excited that she leaves them, runs back to the disciples, and they don't even believe her that it's Peter outside. Now, in the past, I always thought that this scripture was funny because it showed how people can be praying to God, but then not be ready for the answer to that prayer. (laughs) But as I was preparing for this message, something else dropped into my heart. We really don't know what the believers were praying for. Many people, including myself throughout the years, have assumed that the believers were praying for Peter's release. But what if they were simply praying for God to use him mightily during his trial? What if they were praying for more souls to come into the kingdom on behalf of Peter's death? What if they were praying for God to be glorified in the midst of Peter's persecution? That would explain why they would be surprised to see him at the door. I wholeheartedly believe that the church was praying for God's will to be done despite what they wanted for themselves. The amazing thing is that God gave them more than they could even imagine by delivering Peter and simultaneously bringing glory to his name. This also shows us the healing of community. Even with the threat of death just around the corner, the believers gathered at John Mark's house. In the midst of their grief, weeping for James, the church bonded together and had each other's back. They were sad together, concerned together, and prayed together. As a triune being, God exists in community, so it's not surprising that we should live in community as well. When centered on Christ, community can strengthen the weak and bring about change. The believers gathered together and prayed earnestly for God's will to be done in their lives. Now, for my wife and I, We know both the absence and presence of community, and it has affected us in very real ways. Late in the spring of 2008, Katie and I found out that she was pregnant for the first time. We were excited, but at our first sonogram, the baby was measured at six weeks instead of nine. We sat there silently confused. The nurse understood what was going on, and she slipped away without saying much and got the doctor. Our doctor let us know that the baby had stopped growing and that there was no heartbeat. That moment was crushing. In addition, Katie would have to have minor surgery to remove the baby, except there was nothing minor about it. The physical and emotional strain was evident, and it almost broke us. We were living in Katie's hometown at the time, and the only really community we had there were her parents. Besides them, there were no other people to share in our grief. We had no close friends, and no one in the church community really said much to us except, I'm sorry to hear that. Katie and I needed a break away from everyone, So that summer, we went to visit my parents, who were living in Alaska at that time. That time with family gave us a bit of rest and healing, and five months later, we found out that Katie was pregnant again. This time, we kept it to ourselves. With no real community, only our parents knew. One morning soon after this, however, Katie woke me up to say something was wrong. The first thing I said was, no, not again. But the events of that day confirmed that we had lost our second child. During that time, I was really broken and confused with God. I was confused with our role in the church and our lives in our small town. I wanted to give up with God, but I didn't know where else to turn. We questioned everything, but we never gave up on the Lord. But even more, bigger than that, thankfully, he never gave up on us. The very next Sunday, we went to church, and the wife of an older couple, a woman who had later become one of our mentors with her husband named Adrian walked up to Katie and said, God told me to tell you that you were healed. It was a moment of complete peace and awe. Peace, because up to that point, our hearts had been troubled. Awe, because nobody knew about the miscarriage, and it was evident that God had spoken. In that split second, through community, God gave us a promise of hope and redemption. The void from the first miscarriage that had existed due to a lack of relationship with community was instantly filled God later used that couple to speak many things into our lives, including helping us get here to Austin, and they became great friends of ours during that time. God used people as his hands and feet with God as they walked with us through our pain and redeeming the suffering. Katie brought up something to me after the first service, and I completely didn't even think about this, but our friend Adrian, who came up to Katie that day, was battling cancer at that time. And in the midst of her pain, she was still able to come up to us and pour into our lives. And she later passed away, and we still were so grateful for the time we had with her because she made such an impact on our lives. Two years later, after we moved to Austin, we found out that Katie was pregnant with our oldest son, Kevon Elijah. Nineteen months after Key was born, our second son, Keandre Josiah, was born. God had redeemed our pain, and having two boys are sweeter now because of the pain and hurt that we felt before. Last month, when my dad passed away, We felt the exact opposite feeling of what we felt when we experienced the miscarriages. Our church community, you guys, our family, wrapped your arms around us in love. You guys paid for our plane tickets, you brought us meals, you watched our children and our dog, sent us text messages, called us, and a bunch of the family here even drove up to Dallas to attend the funeral. The love of our Mosaic family was one of the the main ways that I felt the peace of God through the entire ordeal. Community changes things. We will have tribulation, it's promised to us, but God has given us the ability to pray and walk with others through it to achieve our healing while working on bringing us justice throughout the whole thing. For some in this room, however, you're thinking, that's not my story. You've gone through suffering with no community, no apparent redemption, and even no relief. For every story of miraculous conception and birth in this building, there's one where there was no miracle. Some have become foster parents and other adoptive parents. They were never able to bear their own biological children, but are no less parents than ones with the same DNA. For all of us who have yet to see an answer to prayer or a resolution to our situation, we can rest assured in God's ultimate plan of redemption. God always has a plan. The Almighty is a God of love, which means he's also a God of justice. And in the end, God's plan will always be evident. People feel the most pain when they don't understand why bad things sometimes happen to good people. The hard truth of the matter is that we may never understand it. It's by God's grace that all of us are even sitting here today. Even so, it's natural to get discouraged when we see pain, suffering, and death while following Christ. Losing my father wasn't the first tragedy to hit my life, and neither were Katie's two miscarriages. At the age of 17, I lost my 15-year-old brother to a genetic heart condition. One Sunday evening, while playing basketball at church, he sat down on the ground. He told my sister he was tired and closed his eyes for the last time and just laid back on the ground. The paramedics rushed him to the closest hospital, and our pastors prayed to my family and me. After about 30 minutes, the doctors came in and told my parents, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. Shock, pain, agony all wrecked my body as the thought hit me that my little brother was gone. Not giving up, my pastors went into the room where my closest friend laid and prayed. We prayed that God would resurrect him. We prayed for a miracle. We prayed that something, anything, would change. After about 10 minutes, everyone became quiet. It was an eerie moment, but my dad said, thank you, and we accepted that the life of my brother, Andre Librid, was over. That night was painful. My dad, the former pastor, Our spiritual leader cried out that night and said, why, God? Why did my son die? That's a tough one. If you're a parent in here today that has lost a child, I know the first thing you probably ask is, why, God? It's not fair. It's not right. They deserve to live. I bet John cried out to God for his brother James. Even Jesus, upon hearing that his cousin, John the Baptist, had died, withdrew to a solitary place. He wanted to be alone with God and mourn the loss of his friend and relative. Can you fathom that? Jesus, the one who has the power to raise the dead, God in the flesh, someone who could have walked into Herod's prison, grabbed his cousin's hand, and walked right out unscathed, somehow had to make it through that time, like many of us here often do now. Why did John the Baptist have to die and Lazarus got a second chance to live? Why was Philando Castile unfairly killed? And subsequently, why was justice not served? As the verdict in his trial came across in my newsfeed, my heart sank. Once again, our earthly system failed us. Once again, hearts would be broken, people would continue to live in fear, and endless debates would begin. How could a busload of Egyptian Christians be ambushed and 30 people killed, many of whom were children? How can a parent watch their child go through chemotherapy And not feel devastated. We could sit here for hours and hours and name people that we all know left this earth way too soon. People made in the image of an almighty God that were taken from the world, even though they did absolutely nothing wrong. Why did James the apostle die? But Peter walked free. Why did my brother, an innocent child, die but me and the rest of my family live? I don't know. And that's a tough pill to swallow. It's one that forces us to put our faith and trust in a God that proclaims, in the end, he will work it all out. Vengeance is his. He will rain havoc over death and destruction. We have to understand that death and destruction are not part of his plan. Sin has corrupted us to a point that we all actually deserve death, but by the grace of God we live. And for those who have gone on before us, or those that are still here, but living through pain, a debilitating disease, a divorce a job loss, or some other heartache, we have to put our faith in the one who says in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Behold, I will make all things new. We have to trust in the God who says, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Therefore, it doesn't matter what desert or wilderness you find yourself in. God is making a way out. And in the end, he will restore all things back to him. Isaiah 65, verses 18 through 20 says, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. Hope. We don't know why God allowed James to die. But we do know what the devil meant for evil. God will use for good. As Christians, we must understand that God does not cause the pain, but he 100% uses it for his glory. And as a God of justice, we see that God brings justice for James through the release of Peter. Now, if you think about it, it's very likely that the very same guards that captured Peter were the ones that captured James and brought him in. These Roman soldiers were known for being evil, dishonest, corrupt. They didn't listen to what their bosses said. And we see that God, as a God of justice, took care of that. Verse eighteen says, In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross examines the guards and ordered that they be executed. Once again we see that God will bring justice himself. The very same guards that God that James put to um, sorry, the very same guards that put James to death were put to death themselves as a result of Peter being supernaturally freed. Ultimately, though, the person responsible for it all was King Herod Agrippa, and as we noticed earlier, he met his demise at the hands of the Lord as well. God will set everything right that has been made wrong. He's done it before, and I guarantee he will do it again in one way or another. Now, how can we apply these truths here today as we leave? Number one, we can earnestly pray when we come across tribulation and suffering just like the early church did. Jesus prayed during trials and tribulation, the church prayed during trials and tribulation. We saw that word, ectenos, meaning to stretch out. Where you stretch yourself to the limits, crying out to God, God, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how to get through this. I don't have a solution, but I'm going to trust you. Number 2, we can walk in community. If you see someone suffering, Pull them aside. Talk to them. Bring them a meal. Give them a shoulder to cry on. Let them know that you're walking beside them and that God is walking with them as well. If you're not going through suffering now, get in the community because when that time comes, you want to be prepared. If you're going through suffering now and don't know where to turn, come up front and find us here at the front of the service, at the end, at the front, at the end of the service, and we'll get you connected with people that love on you, that will pray for you that will take care of you. Finally, we must place our trust in the one who gives us hope for the future. I know this sermon might seem like a sad one and a solemn one, but a lot of us are living in the reality of pain and suffering as we walk out our lives every day. And we have to remember that God will work it all out in the end. We might get redemption here on earth, or we might get in the next life, but God is working on our behalf to turn every bit of evil that comes at you into good, We can trust in God because we have God that have, he's gone through suffering and tribulation and loss, just like we have. As Jesus, he's been disconnected from the love of a father. As a father, he's been disconnected from the love of a son. And we can know and trust that he truly knows best how to rectify these situations that come into our lives. I'm going to leave you with this verse from Isaiah, a verse of hope. Isaiah 30, verse 18 through 19 says... Yet, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him, people of Zion, people who live in Jerusalem. You will weep no more. How gracious he will be for you when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the people in Mosaic Church today. We thank you for your body. We thank you for your power here today. We ask that you give us the grace, Lord, to pray when we come into those times of tribulation and suffering, Lord. Give us the power to reach out and be in community with those who we see hurting and pain around us as our church brothers and sisters go through different things in their lives. Help us to be family to them. Help us to step outside of ourselves and not be afraid of what they think, but just to offer up a shoulder to cry on and to lean on. Lord, just help us trust in you. Trust that you are the one that is working it all out. You are working on our behalf. That you ultimately will bring us justice, whether it's now or later. Whether we never see it or not, we know that you are working out for our good. Help us to be a people that 100% trust in you. Amen.